Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts about what I consider to be some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. If you tuned into our prior episode, we said that we would be talking about Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. Well, we decided to make a quick programming change, and today's album is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Released on February 4th, 1977, the album just celebrated its 45th birthday this past year. So, Bill, I know you know Rumors has sold 40 million copies since its release. Do you have any idea how many of those were sold in the first year of release? I don't. I know it's actually done well in the U.S., and I know that it's really picked up in the past 20 years even, but I don't know how many of them were in the first. So in the first year, it sold 10 million copies worldwide. So that's about 25%. After three years, it had sold 13 million copies. So what that means, with my little harebrained math, 27 million copies have been sold in the 42 years after its first three years. Yeah, I saw that since 97, sales have just gone like vertically straight up. It's it's a significant spike in sales. They sold a good amount the first 20 years, and then the, the next 20 years, it's almost equal or more. So mm -hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, and I think that growing popularity, that enduring appeal, you kind of see that in the Rolling Stone Top 500 list. In 2003, it was number 25. In 2012, it was number 26. But in 2020, it's number seven. And if you actually, uh, I, I was looking at this, vinyl has now outsold CDs, which is crazy that is because, crazy. Uh, you know, people, I guess, are, you know, our, our, our daughters are buying vinyl. We're buying vinyl. I have more vinyl um, in my house now than I did when I was a teenager. Yes. Oh, 100%. So in 2020, the top selling album in the UK, Rumors. <laughs> Seriously. That's I crazy. mean, talk about enduring appeal, right? Yep. So with that, what's your personal history with this album? So you know what? I'm actually going to spin it around. You go first because I have a different perspective on rumors. All right. Well, then we were talking about vinyl that we had as kids. And my first album that I remember is from my dad's collection. It was rumors. And, you know, so that's like when it came out. So I'd say maybe I was it wasn't right when it came out, when it came to me. But I'd say I was probably around fourth grade when rumors came to me and it was like, oh, wow, this is real music and I love it. And that's why it's a very, very important album to me. So you've got a long history with rumors. I don't. And so that's why I wanted you to go first, because for me, rumors didn't really make an entry into my life until recently with the Rolling Stone Top 500. Growing up into music, but it was very different. So my household was very much Earth, Wind & Fire, and the Bee Gees, <laughs> and the Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers was my first album ever. It was my favorite album. I loved wow. the Doobie Brothers. I bought it. We went to two guys in Manalapan, nice. and I, I had saved up my money, and I bought that Doobie Brothers album. That and the Billy Joel album, those were my early influences, and Elton John, and that was the type of music I listened to. So I wasn't really a Fleetwood Mac fan. It wasn't something that made an entry into my life. I'd heard the songs, but it wasn't something where Fleetwood Mac had really any presence in my life at all, other than 
hearing the Clinton theme song and all of that, that stuff, but not something where I had heard the album in great detail. I'm baffled by this story because it's not like 40 million other people had bought it. You know, I mean, how, how is it, it that you missed it while you were listening to the doobies and such? I, Dude, Bee Gees, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Donna Summer, the Jackson 5, Michael Jackson. That was all what was going on in my house. Fleetwood Mac was not played in my house. It wasn't something I heard. Wow. All right. Well, cool. I, I'm blown away. I've learned something very interesting about you already. So. All right, so now we're going to talk about what was happening in music at the time. We talked about what we were listening to. What was the rest of the country and the world listening to? So the number one album to begin 1977 was Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. And that started the year at number one. And then for the next few, several weeks, it alternates with Hotel California, Wings Over America, and the soundtrack from A Star is Born until April when Rumors hits number one for the first time. Rumors is number one for a couple of weeks, and then Hotel California takes the spot again uh, for another five weeks, and then Rumors reclaims the top spot for 26 of the next 27 weeks. The end of 1977 is Linda Ronstadt with the last five weeks of the year and the Simple Dreams album. Rumors opens 1978 back at the top spot for its last stint at the top of the Billboard Hot 200. So besides those number one albums, there were a number of other notable albums. The Clash and the Sex Pistols both debuted with their first albums. Iggy Pop came out with Lust for Life, and David Bowie came out with Low and Heroes. Those were the second and third albums of his Hansa trilogy, and Iggy Pop's album was also recorded at Hansa in Berlin. So if you remember back to our Octung conversation, this is the Hansa connection that we were talking about there. You've also got Steely Dan, Asia, and you've got television marquee moon and you've got Kraftwerk, trans europe express wait a minute so that's steely dan so that's how you say that that's pronounced asia it's pronounced asia i've been reading that as aja all the time and <laughs> and not liking steely dan i'd never <laughs> known the name of the album so all right again you're you're schooling me here i appreciate it so you mentioned uh, the bg so saturday night fever also came out uh clapped in with slow hand and then of course leonard skinner's last album so maybe that's a good place to start going into a little bit what was going on in 1977. And you mentioned Leonard Skinner. That was their last album because there was the tragic plane crash that year where three members of Leonard Skinner were killed. In the United States, Jimmy Carter's the president. You've got Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. You've got Star Wars, Saturday Night Fever, the New York City blackout, and Son of Sam is ravaging New York City. And it was very much a wild time. You've got mayhem. The world was very, really in a different place where you were from the 60s where you've got the peace and love generation. You've got the 70s and the 70s is where that peace and love generation has grown up. They've dealt with the Vietnam War and you're dealing with a very different time. You've got the OPEC crisis coming up. You've got a lot of things where people are really just starting to struggle and, and becoming adults in the time where world is really hard. So the other thing for perspective, I was talking to Chris about this and she's she's got a different perspective because as as a young girl at the time, she remembers Judy Bloom books coming out and Judy Bloom books. She connects very closely to Fleetwood Mac, which I'm like, how the heck did you connect Judy Bloom to Fleetwood Mac? And there was actually a TV movie of the book forever. The music on the TV movie was Fleetwood Mac really? and it was the Eagles. And so she has a really strong connection with Judy Bloom and, and Fleetwood Mac. And she's like, as a, as a young girl at the time, like that's everybody bought that Fleetwood Mac album, the white album, and everybody went out and bought the rumors album. So it, really connected 
differently for me and talking to her about it because I just didn't have that perspective. And you're not joking about everybody bought them because both Rumors and Hotel California each have sold over 40 million copies, which is just crazy. Those are two of the top 10 most uh, biggest selling albums of all time. And they came out at roughly the same time. And apparently they were featured in the Forever movie. <laughs> it's wow. not nuts. TV, I, TV, TV movie. Yes, exactly. Do we need to do a rewatch of, uh, or I shouldn't say a rewatch, a watch of I, Judy I, Bloom Forever? I, I think we need to do a watch of Judy Bloom Forever. There's, I'm reading an article I did a little research after talking to Chris about it and I read an article and it was Stephanie Zimbalist's first starring oh, role. Wow. Remington steel. Yep. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I think uh, maybe we'll do that. We'll consider it. <laughs> or, or should we do like a, a live blog or a live, uh, pod we do a, live po- a live pod while we're watching oh, God. forever by Judy Bloom. All right. So how about we take it back to the Mac? Yes. What do you say? Absolutely. All right. So uh, Fleetwood Mac was founded in 1967, and they were strictly a British blues band. They were fronted by someone named Peter Green. Yeah, no joke, Tony. They were a blues band because I listened to that first Fleetwood Mac album, self-titled Fleetwood Mac, this morning, and it is straight blues. Like, oh, yeah. It is just nothing it's like not, the Fleetwood Mac that I know. It's not bluesy. It's straight it up blues. It is straight yeah. up blues. Yep. So, and and we'll we'll get to we'll get back to that as to why uh, I think their music really what what separates them and what made them interesting. So we'll get to that. Um, so they were a British blues band, and they were fronted by Peter Green, and they had uh, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, and Jeremy Spencer. So, do you know what the original name of the band was? I do not. It's bizarre. It was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. So. What a flex, right? It's like, oh, you want to call it Fleetwood Mac, but you're mine. I'm Peter Green and you're my Fleetwood Mac. So that's so interesting because I read an article where Fleetwood talked about Peter Peter Green being so selfless in naming the group Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yes, because it was his idea to call the group Fleetwood Mac. It wasn't it wasn't Mick Fleetwood's or John McVie's. It was Peter Green's idea to call it Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, and then he, he <laughs> but, it was mine, but it was mine. And he put Peter Green on top of that, and then what begs the question? Then poor Jeremy Spencer, right? Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. Well, what about Jeremy? And I think we might get an answer to that question: What happened to Jeremy Spencer in a little bit? All right. Oh, so anyway, so they were a successful blues band. They debut their debut album reached number four on the UK charts. So I mean, a straight up blues record being number four is is kind of a big deal. So. Do you know any of the songs from that first album? I do. Shake Your Moneymaker. Oh, really? Yep. So Shake wow. Your Moneymaker, which went on to actually inspire the Black Crows to title their album Shake Your Moneymaker. Look at you. Man, you were really <laughs> dropping a lot of knowledge here today. Um, so I was going to go with a different track. I was going to go with a little song called Black Magic Woman. Ever hear of it? I've heard of that one as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's the one that is more famously done by Santana. It's actually an original Fleetwood Mac song, which also blew my mind. That I didn't know. I had no idea of that. So you've got the blues band and you've got Green, Fleetwood, Spencer, and McVie. So where's Christine in all this? So Christine Perfect at the time was a a great name. Such a great name. It's how like I I really I need to do some research if that is actually her given name or did she why dub would, herself? Why out? would you change your name from Christine Perfect to Christine McVeigh? <laughs> right. 
Oh boy. And that talk about selfless, right? Yeah, seriously. So anyway, so Christine Perfect is a singer songwriter for a popular band called Chicken Shack. Now I'd never heard of Chicken Shack. Have you? Nope. But apparently they were pretty popular and she was actually named the most popular female vocalist of the year in 1969 and 1970 as the singer songwriter for Chicken Shack. She married John McVie in 68, but didn't join the band until 1970. But also in 1970 and going back to the Jeremy Spencer of it all, Jeremy, they were hanging out, they were recording, whatever they were doing. He walks into a book, he leaves the wherever they were, goes to the bookstore. He never comes back. He flat out disappears. I mean, that, I, I don't know. That's crazy. But maybe, you know, he, maybe I'm he, totally maybe he makes, guessing here. Maybe but. he makes a reappearance in Pearl Jam's song. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm imagining like, you know, he's feeling slighted. He, his name's not in the band. And now you've got another McVie in here. So he's just totally being left out in the lurch. So Jeremy Spencer goes to the bookstore and never comes back. At the same time, Peter Green was leaving the band and he would soon be replaced by a guy named Bob Welch, not to be confused with the baseball pitcher. And Welch would take over as the guitarist and singer and primary songwriter. And he was from California. So now this is where we start getting the American influx into Fleetwood Mac. And, you know, so Welch brings California and America and that's the start of their transition from a straight blues band to more of a rock pop band. So they moved to Southern California, LA, and they're making a go of it there. But now it's 1974, and now Bob is thinking about leaving. And that takes us to our next phase. So you've got Fleetwood Mac is now looking for their seventh guitarist in seven years. Mick Fleetwood hears a recording of a group. And let me tell you a little bit about that group, kind of leading into who they are. So there's this little group called Buckingham Knicks that just happened to pop up on Mick Fleetwood's radar. Well, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks actually met in high school. They were friends in high school. They met their senior year of high school, and then they went to San Jose State University together. Wait a minute. We met in high school, and we went to Rutgers together. Are we like the next Buckingham Nicks? I see the parallels. <laughs> Does that mean we're going to fight constantly? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. We're doomed to fight constantly and, and, and hate each other eventually. That's about right. <laughs> so they go to San Jose State University together and they decide to drop out to pursue a career in music. And at some point in that continuum, they become a couple and they really fall hard for each other. And they create a group, Buckingham Knicks, and they release an album. And the album is a bomb. No one buys it. But Somehow Mick Fleetwood gets a copy of this album. And when Mick Fleetwood hears the album, he says, that's my guitarist and lead singer. So he approaches Lindsey Buckingham and he says, Lindsey, I've heard your album. I would love for you to join our band. I've got this, this band, Fleetwood Mac. I'm sure you've heard of us. We're now looking for a new guitarist and lead singer. We would love for you to join us. You've got the perfect sound. We're really trying to be more of a rock band. We've started moving in that direction. And Lindsey Buckingham says, you know what? I'd love to but it's a twofer. It's me and Stevie or, or I don't come. I wonder if it was kind of like a bosom buddies deal. If you remember that show where Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari, Tom Hanks is getting uh, hired for a job and he goes, well, I'm only coming if you take uh, Peter Scolari with me. And they say, okay, yeah, we'll take you both, but we're only paying you one. That's, pretty, that's priceless. <laughs> <laughs> so they hear the choice and Fleetwood says, you know what? I think she sounds good also. We're going to take 
both of you and the rest is history. You've got now Fleetwood Mac with Buckingham and Nick's firmly embedded. And that is the classic Fleetwood Mac lineup. Interestingly enough, and I just read this this morning, in 2018, after getting back together multiple times and whatnot, Fleetwood Mac has broken up again, where they've fired Lindsey Buckingham in 2018. And in 2018, they fired Lindsey Buckingham. There's an incident where they were accepting an award and supposedly he was smirking while Stevie was doing a presentation on stage and doing this heartfelt acceptance of the award. And Lindsey's got this smirk on his face. And after the award ceremony, supposedly Stevie pulled the rest of the band aside and said, it's him or me. So it goes from being, it's both of us to being, it's him or me, which I find mm -hmm. a very interesting continuum. Yeah. I was going to say the band didn't fire Lindsay. Stevie fired Stevie Lindsay. Fired Lindsay. And, and talk about a flex, right? Holy smoke. Full circle. Full circle. Yep. So I can't help wonder if, and, and we'll probably, there's no way of knowing this, but did Mick say, okay, yeah, she sounds pretty good. Or did Mick say, yeah, she looks pretty good. <laughs> Well, that maybe leads into some of the other stuff, but <laughs> yeah. let's talk about the album art for a minute before we talk a little bit about the, the, the dynamics of the band. All right. So one of the things that I find really interesting about this album is the album cover. And you've got only two of the band members on the album cover. And interesting fact, of all of the Fleetwood Mac album covers, the full band has never been on any of the album covers. Mm -hmm. So on this album cover, Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks, Mick Fleetwood has got his foot on a stool. He's holding a crystal ball. Stevie is kind of kneeling near him. And you've got what looks to be, there's no easier way to say it than balls, hanging between Mick Fleetwood's legs. And an interesting story about that, that's actually toilet chain that was stolen from an early club that they performed at and he wears it on stage. It's actually a part oh. of his onstage getup that he wears. He wears it all the time and it was just a part of his persona. And that was a part of what was on the album cover. And I never had any idea about that and saw that and was like, wow, that's really interesting. Boy, more, more deep cuts here, Bill. Thanks a lot for that. So I'll talk a little bit about the album itself. So they were living in LA and they were an LA based band, but they decided to go up to the Bay area to record rumors. So they went to a place called The Record Plant in Sausalito, just outside of San Francisco. And the working title of the album was Yesterday's Gone. The album was produced by a gentleman named Ken Calais, as well as Richard Daschet and the band themselves. Now, at this time, the band members' relationships were already getting rocky as they were heading into these sessions. John and Christine were barely talking, and essentially, they were only interacting specifically to conduct the business of recording the record. And Stevie and Lindsay, they were fighting constantly, but then they would write and then they would record and they would fight and they would write and they would record. So it was just that dynamic that was ongoing for them. And then even Mick, who was married, but obviously not directly involved with any of the members of the band, so to speak. Uh, he, he and his oh, wife not, were struggling. Not that anybody knew yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll find out a little bit more about that later, right? So Mick and his wife were struggling with their relationship as well. So that's what's going on with the band personally. And now about the way they recorded, if, if you think back to our Hunky Dory show, we talked about how that album was recorded in about two weeks. And that was because Bowie came in with all these demos. So basically these songs were done and they just needed to record them. Well, rumors couldn't have been more opposite no demos. They would basically come in and the primary songwriters were Christine McVie, Lindsay, and Stevie. And they would bring in just like pieces of songs and they'd bring them to the studio. And then the band would work out writing the songs 
while they were in the studio recording. The other piece that was super interesting to me is that most of the music was recorded in clips and overlaid and dubbed together Mm -hmm. as well. But other than Songbird, which was recorded end to end, the rest of it was really overdubs and replays and loops and pieces snipped together, which doesn't sound like that to me, but it's just a masterful job of song editing. You're exactly right. There's nothing in there that's recorded in like one take. You know, everybody's recording. The tracks that were used in these songs were recorded over months in like four different studios. And it's one thing to go and do a song and over, you know, the course of a couple of days or a week in one place. But the tracks for each of the songs, you know, the guitar, the bass, the drums, the vocals recorded over the course of months in different studios, different times and different places is, is just crazy. So all of that leads to the exorbitant cost of making this album. In 1977 dollars, it cost a million dollars to make this record. And as much as that was, it was topped by Tusk in 1979, the, the follow-up to this record that cost $1.4 million. So a lot of that was all the studio time that we're talking about, but a lot of that was also the cocaine. So supposedly there were two factions in the group. You've got the Brits who were the drinkers, and you've got the Americans who were into pot. Well, both of those factions became very enamored with a white powdery substance and mixed the alcohol, the drugs, and all of these dramatic relationships. And you've got just a firestorm of people together in this in, in this cauldron, effectively. There were a couple of interesting stories, and I'm not going to go crazy deep, but two interesting things that I, I want to call out. One was that supposedly when the band wanted cocaine, any of the members, they would hum and the band <laughs> and the crew would know to bring them cocaine. Really? <laughs> yes. So, so that's the, that's the first piece. Second piece is the producers decided, the co-producers decided to pull a little prank on our friends in Fleetwood Mac. So they had this velvet bag that they would keep their cocaine in. And the producers decided that they would replace the cocaine with talcum powder. So one of these times that the band was asking for drugs, I don't remember which of the producers took the bag and dumped it out and the band lost their mind. So they completely punked them and made them think that they dumped out the cocaine. Very nice. Well, that might be a good segue to something you might not know. So I'm going to tell a little story. You were mentioning the producers. One of the producers was Ken Calais. And I just found this out this morning, but I should, I guess it was eating at me because that name sounded familiar. And it turns out there's a uh, young lady named Colby Calais, who's a popular singer. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's his daughter. Colby Calais is Ken Calais' daughter. And, you know, you might know her from, she has some really big hits. Like I didn't know the names of these songs, but when I played them, I absolutely knew them. Bubbly, Realize, and Try. I saw, both... I saw Colby Calais live. She's oh. awesome. Oh, wow. So you, you tell me more about her than, than, you know, than I know, but she's the daughter of Ken she, Calais. She opened, I, I, Chris and I saw her at the PNC Art Center, she opened for Goo Goo Dolls and she was phenomenal. Nice. Well, I guess it runs in the family a little bit. So apart from those songs that I mentioned, she appears on Taylor Swift's Breathe and she actually won a Grammy for her duet with Jason Mraz on a song called Lucky. So my something you did not know is a little bit different direction. It goes back pre-Fleetwood Mac. So you talked a little bit about Peter Green and Peter Green and his Fleetwood Mac, or I don't remember what was the Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. Was that what it was? So there was a group that started prior to Fleetwood Mac called John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. And John Mayle was a 
musician that decided in the early 60s to start a blues band. And he proceeded to get John McVie to join and an artist that you may have heard of called Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton left the Yardbirds and joined John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. So Eric Clapton's with Blues Breakers. They put out an album and Clapton leaves and they need to replace Clapton. Who do they replace Clapton with? Peter Green. The drummer leaves. Who do they replace the drummer with? Mick Fleetwood. Wow. So they met because you've got Green, McVie, and Fleetwood together. McVie stayed with the Blues Breakers. Peter Green leaves and decides to start a band. He grabs Mick Fleetwood and they go. They grab a couple of artists and eventually they convince McVie to leave. And that's the start of Fleetwood Mac. So Peter Green would then be replaced by Mick Taylor from a little group called the Rolling Stones. And that brings us back to the Bowie pod where we're talking about the little boy blue and the blue boys and the Rolling Stones and all these so interwoven. So interwoven. The music scene in England here is, is just bonkers. I can't believe all these connections. It's crazy. It blew my mind when I was I was looking at this. I had heard of John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, but I didn't know the thread. And if you look at who was in John Mayall and the Blues Breakers over the years, it's insane. I mean, Patti Smith did a stint with, with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. It's, it's nuts. Well, I guess then on that theme, I'll give you a bonus something you didn't know. So we talked about Mick Fleetwood and his wife uh, having some troubles. His wife was a gal named Jenny Boyd. Jenny Boyd, that name might sound familiar because she is the sister of Patty Boyd. And Bill, I know you know who Patty Boyd is. Mrs. Harrison, who eventually became Mrs. Clapton. Patty Boyd was Mrs. George Harrison at this time that you're talking about right now. And uh, she was married to George Harrison at the time. And he, she, she was the inspiration for some of his, his, his best song, personally, in my opinion, something. And as well as for you, Blue, I Need You, and If I Needed Someone. So if you're the, the inspiration for something, that's already pretty cool. But she was more than that uh, as far as inspiration goes because Clapton had his eyes on her the whole time. And eventually she leaves George Harrison for Clapton and she goes on to inspire Layla, Bellbottom Blues, and Wonderful Tonight. Holy cow. Well, and there's a similar thread with Jenny Boyd, actually, Tony. So Jenny Boyd, married to Mick Fleetwood, supposedly... Mick Jagger wrote a song about Jenny Boyd and Jenny Boyd subsequently had a relationship with the artist Donovan. And there's a famous song, Jennifer Juniper, which is written about Jenny Boyd. So these sisters, I don't know what was going on with these sisters, but like the impact that they had on music, insane. That I didn't know a thing about Jenny Boyd until researching this. And I hadn't even heard that story that you told. What is in that gene pool? And do they have any kids? <laughs> so she, Jenny Boyd actually just not long ago came out with a memoir called Jennifer Jun uh, Jennifer Juniper. And it's definitely something that I'm going to look at picking up because it's supposedly pretty interesting. And I think Patty Boyd also has a memoir called Wonderful Tonight. Yep. So, all right. So bonus, something you didn't know. So I think that wraps up our something you didn't know section, Tony. Let's move on to our track by track walk and talk a little bit about some of the interesting facts about the tracks and a little bit about what we think about the tracks. All right. That sounds good. So we've got 11 songs on this album. There were four that were written by Christine McVie, three by Lindsay, and three by Stevie, and then one that was written by the entire band. And the album clocks in at about 40 minutes. Our first song, the leadoff track, is Secondhand News, written by Lindsay Buckingham. Do you have anything to say about that, Bill? That's one of those Lindsay diss tracks for, for Stevie, mm -hmm. right? You've got 
three Lindsey Buckingham songs and they're all kind of about Lindsey's feeling brokenhearted because him and Stevie broke up and are in a bad place and fighting. And secondhand news is very much, I'm just secondhand news. I'm just secondhand news. And he's feeling upset about it. And they're in a band together singing this together. I know like this year, a huge deal was made of Taylor Swift's All Too Well, the 10 minute version, Taylor's version, the movie and everything and talk about the ultimate diss track. Now, could you imagine if Taylor was in a band with Jake Gyllenhaal and Jake Gyllenhaal had to sing backup to this while she's sitting there dissing him? Can you imagine that? That would be exactly what happened in Fleetwood Mac Rumors recording. Yeah, pretty much every song, right? Pretty much every song. So the other interesting thing for me with this track, this is really Lindsay calling the shots for the first time. He's really stepping in and exerting his influence on the band. He didn't like components of it. So he's like, I'm going to do it differently. He's really stamping the California rock feel on the band with this song. It is a really influential track from that perspective. It really kind of leads into what comes up with some of the next albums as well. And you can't say that it was the wrong direction, obviously with 40 million copies sold, but you know, that California rock sound is the Eagles and that's exactly what's coming out at the same time. So that's the dominant music of the era you know we we talked about linda ronstadt being number one at the end of the year so it's it's almost a continuum of hotel california to rumors to linda ronstadt that's all all of those acts were from la or southern california best-selling albums of all time two of the top three eagles eagles greatest hits and hotel california eagles greatest hits 38 million copies sold in the U.S. alone. And Hotel California and Rumors, both over 40 million. So those three albums. But, but no, no, no. U.S. alone. Oh. U.S. alone. Oh, not worldwide. Wow. U.S. alone. Rumors in the U.S., about mm-hmm. 20 million. 38 million, just the U.S.? Just Holy the U.S. Smoke. So yeah, so that's the sound of the time. And Lindsay had a huge part of that. Well, he took out McVie's bass track. And he re-recorded it. I, re- I read a story where supposedly McVie threw a bottle of vodka at, <laughs> at Buckingham because he was so angry at him. Now, understanding how much of a alcoholic McVie was at the time, I'm not sure that the bottle must have been empty when he threw it at him. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it probably was. All right. So track two is Dreams. And that's a Stevie track, obviously. And that's a song that if you didn't know it before... 2020 you know it now from the vibe video uh, that apodaca guy riding his i don't know was it a skateboard a scooter whatever drinking the cranberry juice 25 million views and counting for that video and that song became popular again so much so that it charted in the top 40 for the first time 43 years after it was released and it uh, reached as high as number 29 and it's fleetwood mac's only number one hit Dreams is their only in their huge songography and discography. It's the only number one hit for Fleetwood Mac. It's almost impossible to believe, but when you think back, I guess that's the era of you know album rock, right? So it, you know what was the pop hits weren't necessarily the best songs. It was just uh, the one offs, and then the album rock is where you got just the collection of great songs. Yeah, and love the thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. Love, love, love the lyrics in this song. Right, a little preview of the draft, maybe. I'm doing some scouting here. See if I can steal something from you. Okay, so the next song is Never Going Back Again. Amazing story on Never Going Back Again. Just a tremendous guitar track. And when it was first recorded, the producers heard 
Buckingham going crazy on the guitar and he's, he's got this amazing bright sound and like, oh, it sounds so great for the first 20 minutes, but he's, he's hitting it so hard. You know what? We're going to have you restring the guitar. So they have the guitar techs restring the guitars every 20 minutes and they do this for the course of a day and they're just thrilled with what they've recorded. And as we talked about before, the album was really pieced together. So when they go to piece it together and they put the guitar track with Lindsey Buckingham's voice, what they notice is he's playing in the wrong key for his voice. So they actually had to scrap all of that and they re-recorded the guitar. They didn't restring the guitars on the re-record and that's how they actually- And you know what? The guitar sounds amazing. I, I didn't know about this story. And the thing that stands out about this song is how beautiful the guitar work is. So it it seems like maybe a little overkill what they were doing. And again, now you know how they got to a million dollars plus, right? I would love to hear the snip, the outtakes, the snippets, the pieces that they didn't use. I'm not sure if there's a version of the album that has that, but it would be phenomenal to hear that just the recorded guitar track where they did the restringing. I would love to hear that. I'll go one better. I want to hear the outtakes when they found out that it was in the wrong key. (laughs) (laughs) I have to record this again. What? (laughs) Uh, All right. So now we have our next song, which is Don't Stop. And that's a Christine McVie song. And, And I'll tell you, I have a hard time even judging how good this song is, whether or not I like it, just because I've heard it so many times just over the course of the years where it was uh, because it was Bill Clinton's campaign theme song, campaign song, and then later his theme song. So every time at any event that he was appearing at, you would always hear him entering to Don't Stop. And as much as I may or may not like Clinton, I just can't hear that song ever again. You know, the interesting thing for me on Don't Stop is it's a Christine McVie song. She wrote it. And what I get out of it is Lindsay Buckingham, because I didn't even know it was a Christine McVie song until I did the research on this. I'm like, it's a Lindsay, it's got to be a Lindsay Buckingham song. It's not. When they started recording it and Christine McVie was doing the lead vocals by herself, it just didn't sound right. So they decided to do it as a duet. And oh, thank God they decided to do it as a duet because it is a brilliant song, but I never knew it was a McVie song. Yeah. And to that point, Colleen and I were just talking about, we were re-listening to the album last night and she was talking about how she likes Christine McVie's singing, but only on like sort of the softer songs and not on the on the more rock songs. And and that's really my barrier with her as well. Like I just don't really like her voice leading the rock songs. You know, you and I have talked about this so many times. I think I asked you the question a while ago, what song would you rather have Christine McVie sing than Stevie Nicks? And because when I first started really listening to Fleetwood Mac, I was really, oh my God, Stevie Nicks is just the best. The more and more that I listen, and I just listened to the 1987 album, Tango in the Night, and tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies, Christine McVie. So I didn't appreciate Christine McVie until I really started listening to some of this stuff because I'm like, Stevie Nicks, Stevie Nicks, Stevie Nicks. And Well, hold on. I just want to or- stop you there because on, on Little Lies, that's also a lot of harmony with Stevie too. And it, it, it is, but McVie's the lead sure. vocal. You've, you've got Stevie chiming in there. And Stevie's vocals on everything because she's you know just great in doing the both lead and, and harmonies and whatnot. But I think that you've got a couple of good examples in Little Lies and in this, in this song and in uh, You Make Love and Fun and Songbird where McVie's brilliant. And 
I didn't necessarily feel that way when I, I first listened to the album. It's really been something I've connected with it's the more and more I've listened and the more I've listened to Fleetwood Mac. All right. Well, we will agree to disagree because I think that uh, the the ones that I like are on. Well, no, I mean, so Songbird is an exception because it's a as, is a ballad. But I think where I like her is when she's got that harmony with Lindsay and Don't Stop and and uh, Stevie and uh, Little Lies. Okay, good. Well, then in the draft, maybe we'll have some divergence there, and you can take your McVees early, and I can swoop in with some Stevie late. <laughs> there you go. All right. We'll we'll see how it plays. Okay, so what's next? So next up is Go Your Own Way. And Go Your Own Way is... Let me guess. Is it another diss track, Bill? You Can Go Your Own Way is another track where he is just feeling like Stevie did him dirty. And (laughs) (laughs) and he's going to take every opportunity to pick on Stevie. Shacking up is all you want to do. She would run out of the studio, storm (laughs) out of the studio when that line would be sung. And Mick Fleetwood confirmed that there was, quote, some conflict between the two of them. And that that line that you mentioned, it would just really make her want to explode so much that she would even refuse to sing in some sessions. And then in 2009, Stevie said that it was certainly a message within a song and not a message that I really liked. I just can't imagine what it was like recording this darn album. It's mind boggling. Well, it's one thing. Yeah, I agree with you. But now take that even further performing these songs night in and night out you're looking you're doing a duet you're looking at this person while they're singing these words of anger at you every night holy cow and add in that when did stevie and mick fleetwood start fooling around like during during this time wait what what huh i don't know anything about this (laughs) yeah stevie and mick fleetwood were fooling around at this period of time as well (sighs) these guys unbelievable Okay, so with all of that, what's our next song? <laughs> next up is the lovely ballad Songbird. <laughs> and it's just a nice, sweet song. It's basically Christine McVie singing a sweet song of, of happiness and positivity. The producers really felt that it needed a concert hall treatment. So what they did is they took Christine McVie to a nearby concert hall. And it is Christine McVie unvarnished by herself on piano, start to finish, that's Songbird. It's Christine by herself, one take, but that one take wasn't the first take. All night session, 10 hours of her just playing that imagine, song over and over again. Can you imagine doing again. that over and over and over again to get it right in one take? No, I can't. And now it makes me wonder, let's just suppose she did 100 takes. Which one is the one that we actually heard? Was it number 100? Was it number five? <laughs> it's like number three. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I like number three. That was a good one. So yeah, that's a pretty song too. So uh, definitely uh, nothing to say because that's the perfect, to me, that's the the sweet spot of where I like to hear Christine McVie sing. And it's just a nice, upbeat, I love you, I love you, I love you, like never before. Yeah. It's just a nice song. And it's 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 meant as a positive feeling for the band yeah she described it as a as a prayer for the band as a matter of fact uh, no, it's sounds a, that's of it, a, yeah that's a beautiful way of, of putting yeah. it yeah they could they could certainly use some prayers that's for sure all right so we go from songbird <laughs> a nice transition to the chain which is the only song and i think it might even be the only song 
in this lineup's history where the whole band is credited as songwriters, but definitely on this album. Well, and talk about a dichotomy. You get the, the song that was done in one take to the song that took how long to do, Tony? I think it took like a year. This was one of the first songs that they actually started to work on. And it was one of the last ones that they finished. And it's the Frankenstein song, right? Mm-hmm. It's the song that's put together from snippets, mm-hmm. which I yeah, think you were, you were telling me about because I didn't even know the, the whole history. So yeah, it starts out. So when we say that it was one of the first songs they had, Lindsay had that ending part where it kind of rocks with the sort of that guitar solo and really that cool ending. And he knew he had good music there and he knew that there was a song there, but he just didn't have any of the lyrics. And then they realized that they had um, an old Christine McVie song that they had not recorded, but she had written and it was called Keep Me There. And they said, well, you know what? We can take Keep Me There and we can just put it on top of or in front of the Lindsay part and we start to have the makings of a song. But it turns out those Keep Me There lyrics didn't really work with the song, but they really liked the melody. So Dr. Frankenstein comes in and Stevie drops in some new lyrics on top of Christine's melody, which then they append to Lindsay's solo and... You have the Frankenstein song. You go from Songbird, one take, Christine McVie by herself on a piano to the Frankenstein song. That was done over over a year in the recording studio. Crazy amount of overdubs, crazy amount of re-records. They didn't finish that song until right before they were finished dropping the album. I mean, and it, I don't it, think Lindsay was really satisfied. I don't think he felt it was done. But you know, they, they just they had, had to, to be done. Yeah. They had to go out the door. Yeah. So hey, the finished product was amazing. And oh, if, amazing song. And and uh, until I told you that, would you have known that it was a Frankenstein song? No, I, I really didn't. I mean, yeah. I didn't know the, the history of the song makes sense with the title of the song. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So that was something that really, you know, when we were talking about it, I'm like, wow, that okay, that's why it's called that. Well, well then when you started talking about the album art and you're talking about that toilet chain, then I started thinking, gosh. <laughs> toilet chain, chain. Is, is there any way that's connected? I don't think so, but it's still kind of weird. All right, so after the chain, what's next? What's next is You Make Love and Fun, the Christine McVie song. So this is one of those rock Christine McVie songs that I like, and I think she's awesome on this track. And the thing that's interesting about this one is that she is singing about the affair that she's having with the lighting director. (laughs) Now, John McVie knew she was having the affair, but he didn't know that that's what the song was about. I think that's nuts. It's just bonkers. For years, he didn't know. So he'd been performing that song for maybe decades before he was told that it was about the lighting director and he had no idea, but um, maybe it's better because if he would have known, who knows? He would have thrown the bottle of vodka at her. (laughs) But I'll tell you, also, I used to not like this song because I didn't like Christine McVie's singing, but in re-listening, I actually really like this song and what I like best about it is John McVie. His bass work is really, really good on this song. <laughs> so funny. Right? He's so good on this song. And and I guess maybe that speaks to that alchemy that we were alluding to before, where I think that what makes Fleetwood Mac, and particularly this album, so good is, is Mick and John giving that backbone, that blues backbone with their with their percussion and bass, I think is what somehow grounds, you know, Lindsay's 
searing guitars and and then the great vocals but i think it really doesn't happen without mick and john with the uh bass and the drums i agree and i definitely gotten that in re-listens you can definitely hear the bass and the percussion that blues vibe is there mm-hmm. it really is and it, it really ties the album together so well for sure all right so uh next up is i don't want to know so there's a really interesting story about how this song ended up on the album. So I Don't Want to Know is a Stevie song, and it's actually an old Buckingham Knicks song. Um, and they had to, originally they were going to have Silver Springs on the record, and Stevie loves Silver Springs, loves Silver Springs. But she apparently has a history of just writing kind of long-winded songs. And if you start looking at her track history, her songs tend to be the longest ones on the albums. And it's because she, to drop another Taylor Swift reference, you know, usually has like 10 verses for all her songs and they just have to cut them down. And even then she doesn't want to cut them down because she feels so attached to all of it. She thinks that, you know, I wrote them for a reason and they're really important. And, you know, so they struggle with the length of the songs. And as we've talked about in prior shows, the in the era of vinyl, you had to adhere to not just 43-ish minutes, but, you know, 21-ish minutes per side. And the number of songs that they had and the length of the songs they had, Silver Springs couldn't fit. So she was furious that they were cutting Silver Springs, but they said, well, listen, we'll throw you a bone and we'll give you a different song. How about I Don't Want to Know? It's interesting for me that Silver Springs is the one that's cut. Where I would go there is you've got a Stevie ballad, soft, gentle song, but you've got already two ballads on the album and they didn't want to be this ballad band, right? You've got mm. Christine McVie's got Songbird and you've got Oh Daddy, which we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Two really soft ballady type songs where I don't think they wanted to add a third ballad to the album. So oh, I, I and I think and, and what you see is the dynamic of who's who's the power. Christine McVie's got the two ballads on the album, not Stevie. Yeah. And Christine McVie's got four songs and Stevie and Lindsay each only have three. So yeah. All right, so what's next? Oh, so you mentioned Oh Daddy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Oh Daddy? Oh Daddy is another McVie song, and it's very much a an ode to Mick Fleetwood as kind of the father figure of the band. But it's really also kind of a tortured relationship, an abusive relationship. So it's, it's maybe not such a nice uh, allusion to Mick Fleetwood. And it's a, it's a ballad. It's a, kind of a hard song for me to connect with, to be very honest. It's the one that I struggled the most with. And, you know, I was talking to Chris about it this morning and she's like, well, it's because you're a guy. You didn't, you, you don't connect to it quite as well. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I guess so. Oh, that's funny. So Chris might be right on because when Colin and I were talking about this, she said it's one of her favorite songs on the album. That's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I think you, you and I just have a very different perspective on it when we listen to it. Men are from Mars, right? Yep. Okay. So now that gets us to the last song. It's Gold Dust Woman. That's a Stevie. Coyote and Cavassier. (laughs) What do you mean by that, Bill? I mean, Stevie is at her best witchy coyote howl on this track. You've got her drunk off her rear on Cavassier, channeling her full-on witch and really doing that coyote howl that really is just amazing on this track. Goldust Woman is a very, very cool track, and you get a lot of powerful Stevie on this track. I, I love this song, too. But I think that I even like Courtney Love's version better. Do you remember really? Courtney Love's version? You no, know, I don't. I can't imagine liking Courtney Love's version better than Stevie's version. You should check it out. It's it's really good. I think it was on the soundtrack for the Crow album, but um, I don't remember that. I didn't see the movie, but yeah, check check it out afterwards. It's it's really good. It rocks. 
All right. So that, I guess that wraps up our uh, track review, right? Yes. I guess that wraps <laughs> up our track review. So, so what's next? Up next is our song draft. Bill, remind me again. What's a song draft? Our song draft is where Tony and I alternate picks from the tracks of the album and we make a little roster of songs, a team of songs, if you will. And one of us will be deemed the victor by our listeners and the other will live in infamy as a loser. <laughs> well, no one's a loser if you have to listen to this album 20 times to prepare for this pod. So I think we're both winners today. I think that's fair. But there can only be one winner, kind of like Highlander with our fans, right? You know, we've got the, there can only be only one. And let's remind everybody how that winner is determined. So in the description of each episode, there is a link. It will say click here for our song draft poll. Please click the link and please vote. So before we get into this week's song draft, I need to know, Bill, did I win? Did I finally win? Did I get on the board? Tell me. Tell me the results of last week's draft. So, Tony, I am sorry to tell you, you are 0 for 2. Heartbreaking. The fans have spoken, and I have indeed come out the victor. <laughs> and, you know, we did put in a lot more security with the uh, polling. And while I'm disappointed, it's a new show. It's a new week, and I've got another shot to win. So tell me, Bill, who's up first? So rumors was my pick. So you get first pick, Tone. You get first slot in the draft. And it is a very desired position to be on this album. So I'm I'm totally torn because I'm thinking about trying to outsmart myself, but then I realize that I'm Go not ahead. Outsmart, smart. Outsmart, outsmart yourself. <laughs> I'm I'm all for it. So I'm just going to stay true to myself. I'm going to go with one of my favorite songs of all time, The Chain. Great pick at number one. I was thinking about going with what I think you're going to take next and wondering if maybe you wouldn't take The Chain in the next spot. So oh, I, I, would have taken, I would have taken The Chain in the next Oh, okay, spot. good. So. so I'm going to go with Go Your Own Way with Fantastic. number two. And that picks you. that puts you up at number three. I'm going to go Gold Dust Woman. That is an awesome pick at number three. So I'm up at number four, and I'm going to go with the Stevie Classic Dreams at number four. 43 years later, it hits the top 40. I don't think you're going wrong there. I think I'm going to go Secondhand News. Secondhand News is a great pick. And at number six, I'm going with Don't Stop. Very good. You and Bill Clinton have something in common there. I'm going to go with... The late addition to the album, but although it was late ad, it's not a bad song. I'm going to go, I don't want to know. Oh, I didn't think you were going to go there. Man, I was hoping to get it. So I will go with You Make Love and Fun at number eight. Yeah, that really has grown in my estimation. I really like that song. I'm going to take Never Going Back Again. So at number 10, I'm going to pick Songbird. And that leaves you with the last track on the album. Oh, daddy. All right, so that wraps up our song draft. Let's just do a quick recap at number one tony picked the chain at number three gold dust woman at number five secondhand news at number seven i don't want to know at number nine never going back again and at number 11 oh daddy my roster of songs at number two go your own way at number four dreams at number six don't stop at number eight you make love and fun at number 10 songbird so you got three mcvee songs and the one that i got i was stuck with isn't that amazing that i got three mcvee songs yeah 
I think that's proof that I'm going to have to win, right? I am very happy with getting the three McVie songs. Very happy. All right, audience. So let us know who you think won. And we're not going to try and sway you, but I think we both know who won. Uh, yeah, I think we both know that I won. Absolutely. <laughs> I won. All right. So we're at the end of our show today. And Bill, why don't you share with us some quick final thoughts? So for me, this album was something, as I said earlier, that I hadn't really listened to end to end. And I've listened to this now 10 plus times, and I'm enjoying it more and more every time I listen to it. As I said, Christine McVie was somebody that I just wasn't very knowledgeable about, and now I really enjoy her music. I really enjoy the blues component of Fleetwood Mac piece, which I didn't know that they were a blues band early on. It really knits together really well for me. I agree. The learning a little bit about them informs the way you listen to it and you really appreciate the things that you already knew you subconsciously liked but didn't understand why. Now realizing their origin makes you appreciate why you like those songs. For me, this album has been so important to me for so long that it's kind of been a matter of faith where I just like know that it's one of my favorite albums of all time but hadn't really listened to it that closely in ages. And wow, just a renewed appreciation. And and I was right when I was, you know, six years old or eight years old. And, and I continue to be right at 50. Well, before we started this podcast, when you and I were talking about listening to the 500 albums, we talked about rumors relatively early on as because we were talking about what the Rolling Stone top 10 were. And I knew you had a perspective of it and I didn't. And talking to Chris, Chris had a perspective on it. It's a brilliant album. It really is. Well, with that in mind, tell us, Bill, let's let's close out here with where does this rank in your personal top 20? So for me, this is my number eight album of all time. So Rarified Air, it's in the top 10. Wow. Well, I guess that wraps it up for us this week. Please tune in next week when we really do Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. I think we're really going to do it this time, Tony. I think we are. I, I, I feel swear. good about it. I swear we will. We'll do it. Thank you, everybody. Wait, you're still here? Okay, I guess if you're still here, we can give you a little bit of bonus. So here's a little snippet of something that we didn't quite keep in the pod, but we wanted to share with you. We're calling this segment After the Pod. I was nervous about doing this podcast. I might splice this piece in. So I was nervous about doing this one, Tony, because this is one that I had a hard time with. I didn't have a connection with Fleetwood Mac. It was one that it really took me a while to feel comfortable even talking about it because I didn't have a history with it. So I was nervous coming into this. I continue to be fascinated by that just besides the fact that it just seems impossible. But you picked this too. So like you talk about like facing your fears or whatever, right? This project is about stretching my comfort zone. So it's about stretching my comfort zone and listening to music that I've le never listened to. It's about stretching my comfort zone now and doing a podcast, which is something I never imagined I'd be doing. And it's really about trying to grow. Yeah. All right.